Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you today. And uh, I look at Chris and think back on our life and time together and being with him in those early, early days as he began praying about what God was going to do for him. And we talked and, and uh, discussed places all around the United States where he might go and plant a church. And I'll never forget him coming into my study and saying, you know, I believe that God has called me to Muncie. This is where I want to put my roots down and I want to plant the church. And today I see all of you as a fruit, uh, the fruit of his uh, vision and his investment and his willing to take risks. So give Chris my best. I don't know what this means. Maybe you all mean some video, egg video. Do you know what that means? Oh, good. Surprise next week. Don't don't forget to come and to find out what this video is. And then if you think of it, give me an email or something. Let me know what that was. I'm curious. This morning I want to spend some time uh, really focusing on the theme, the church at its best. Dr. Paul Kahn is the president of Lee University, and in his book, Making It Happen, he tells about a time when he lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and one uh, evening he was planning on taking his wife out to dinner and he was looking back in the old days through the yellow pages to find um, a phone number to make a reservation. And as he was going down the list of all of the restaurants in Atlanta, he came across a restaurant called the Church of God Grill. He paused and he looked at that and he thought, is this really a restaurant? Is it a misprint? What What is this? So he picked up the telephone and called the number. And a very cheery voice at the other end said, Hello, Church of God Grill, may I take your order? He said, Are you serious? Is, is, is this a restaurant? <clears throat> and the proprietor said, Absolutely. He said, Well, I'm curious. How did you come up with that name? He said, Well, several years ago, we took the risk and we planted a church in inner city Atlanta. And times were tough. And budgets were tight. And one of the ways we thought we might help the budget was to sell chicken dinners after church on Sunday morning. And our folks really liked the chicken dinners. And they started telling their friends about it. And so their friends attending other churches stopped by our church Sunday afternoon and had fried chicken. And even as they went into their workplace and the word spread about these chicken dinners, some people thought, well, could you offer a chicken dinner, a meal on Wednesday nights on our way home from work. We could stop by the church. So they began selling chicken dinners before Bible study at midweek. And finally, the chicken dinners went so well, they started cutting back on the services. And finally, they closed the church down altogether and opened up a restaurant. And they decided to keep the name that brought them such great success. The Church of God grill. When you study the New Testament and you study contemporary churches today, you find that not all congregations prove to be sustainable over time. And yet congregations in the United States are durable. A study at the University of Arizona reported that Christian congregations are the least likely to close their doors among all social service organizations that deal in ministry and service of human beings. And yet there's a footnote at the end of the study that said, 
However, many congregations simply endure. They continue when they've lost the willingness to take risks and to reach out and to be truly the presence of Christ in their communities. This morning I want to highlight three characteristics of healthy churches, past and present, that I believe enable them to function at their best. And while these three characteristics are not exhaustive, they are characteristics that we find in the book of Acts. In Luke, the author of Acts, in his teaching and helping us to understand about the superintending work of the Holy Spirit, empowering a discouraged prayer meeting into becoming a fully functioning church that even the gates of hell could not prevail against. And while the early church was not without its share of problems, and neither are we, for Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles, we do get a glimpse of what God intended the church to be. When the church is at its best, there's a power to tell, there's a, there's a vision to see, and there is a holy presence to follow. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, your word teaches us that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be risk takers and that we would walk in the light that you have revealed. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When the church is at its best, there's a power that prompts us to want to tell others about Jesus. In Acts 1.8, some would say this is the key verse in the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. Jesus had instructed his disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until the promised gift of the Holy Spirit should come. Jesus had talked to his disciples how it would be best that that he would go away, that he would return to the Father so that the Father may send the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that those disciples who had been with Jesus for some three years had their doubts. I mean, it doesn't, think of it, it doesn't get any better than to be in the physical presence of Jesus. But Jesus had said, it's best that I go away so that the Holy Spirit should come. And as he ascended to the Father, he told those gathered on that hillside, you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses. Now the you in the text is not you, the individual. It is a second person plural, meaning it's you, the group that he's talking to. And will be is, the verb will be, is in the declarative form, not the imperative. And I think it's important that we see the difference here. It's not you, the individual, must be my witness. No, it's simply this. You all are my witnesses. Wherever you go, whatever you do in life, you are my witnesses. Now, the question might be, are we a good witness in our corporate efforts together? Are we fulfilling the commission? Are we actually making disciples? 
but it's never to be considered the task of one or two people. The Holy Spirit has come to empower the church to be risk-takers and at work in the world today. The theological term that we use to describe this being those who share Christ with others is the term evangelism. And the goal of evangelism, the end means, the goal is not simply that we get people to raise their hand or make decisions. The goal of evangelism is always to make disciples. And this whole task of evangelism is about inviting people who do not know Jesus to come to the point of repentance and baptism and then We don't stop at that point. We also then invest in their lives so that they become connected to Christ, that they remain in Christ, and they stay connected to His body, the church. This is what we call discipleship. So evangelism, in in its holistic sense, is both and, not either or. It's inviting people to Jesus, repentance and baptism, And it's investing time and energy into people's lives. That's called discipleship. And that is the call that we have in our life. And holistic evangelism empowers all of us to make this a reality. Let me illustrate how one church managed in this whole area of holistic evangelism. A few years ago, I was interviewing a new, a potential faculty member at the uh, Anderson University. And after going all over their credentials, their academic credentials, and checking references on the person, I always, over dinner, I'll sit down and, and I want to find out not simply what they know here, but what they're experiencing in their life as well. And I ask them to tell their story. That's the part of being a witness, is to simply tell your story. I was blown away. I wasn't expecting this. He told me that he was born out of wedlock in Wheeling, West Virginia, and his young teenage mother could not afford to keep him, so she sent him to Chicago to spend some time of his life, early years of his life, with family members who could raise him. And at nine years of age, he said, on the south side of Chicago, he became a drug runner for one of the gangs there. By the time he was 15, he also had a child out of wedlock. He had moved up in the echelon of the gang, and he had become a stellar seller, user, and abuser of illegal drugs. He said one Friday evening, as he was in his penthouse apartment, he decided that he would take the allotment of drugs that was delivered to him on Friday to sell over the weekend, and he would have a party. And invited all of his friends and they consumed all of the drugs that he was to sell all night Friday night, all day Saturday, all night Saturday night. So he awakened on Sunday morning and his friends were all gone. And he sat in his apartment alone and he realized he had no means to pay his debt that was due on Sunday evening and he feared for his life. He said he was watching television, waiting for NFL football, in sort of a haze, a stupor. And he came across a religious broadcast, a delayed 
religious broadcast from the Vernon Park Church on the south side of Chicago. And he looked at that church and he picked up the phone and he called a friend. He said, come over here quickly. The friend came in and he said, we're going to church this morning. And he said, his friend said, oh, really? He said, yes, we're going to go to the Vernon Park Church and we're going to rob it to pay my debt that is due this evening. He said he put his pistol under his belt and put his jacket on over it. He walked in and took the seat the second row from the back. His friend took the seat the second row from the back. He was in the front. And the plan was this, that when the offering was taken, they would simply get up, follow the ushers out into the narthex, and there they would hold them up at gunpoint. He told me, he said, what I didn't realize that in the liturgy of the Vernon Park Church, the offering is taken at the end of the service. He said, I had to sit through the spirited congregational singing. I had to listen to the moving anthem of the gospel choir. I had to listen to those long, protracted prayers of the deacons. And I had to listen to the Sunday morning sermon. He said, as the preacher preached that day, he said, there are two roads. There's a broad road that you can travel that will lead to destruction. And there's a narrow road that you can travel that will lead to life. And he said, as he was preaching, he looked right at me and he said, young man, you need to get your life straightened out before it's too late. And then he kept right on preaching. He said, you cannot marry the life of Jesus, and the life of the devil. You've got to make a choice. It's one or the other. You've got to make a decision. And he came back in that sermon. He said, young man, why don't you give your life to Jesus today? What have you got to lose? He said, if the way of Jesus doesn't work out, you can always go back to robbing churches. He said, somebody's tipped the preacher off. He looked at his friend in the back and he said, abort the mission. Abort the mission. But then he realized he hadn't spoken with anyone. And he realized that something was up. That he was there for a purpose. And as the gospel message was preached that day and it was time for people to appropriate the gospel lesson, at the end of the service, he got up and he came down front and he pulled his pistol out and he placed it on the communion table and he fell to his knees and said, God, have mercy on me. That is so appropriate, that applause at that point. That wasn't in the notes. I'm glad you're not following my notes. But you know, the Bible says that there is rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents. But I want you to know something. It does not end there. A beautiful thing happened. Some of the men of the church came down and they gathered around him and they prayed for him. And when they heard his confession, when they heard his plight, they said, young man, you cannot go back to your apartment. Your life is in danger. And they found him a safe place to live. They got him enrolled in a drug rehab program. And he was 
set free from his addiction. They got him enrolled in a GED program. He had dropped out of high school. They helped him to get his high school degree. They involved him in a Bible study in the church. And they found out that this young man became a stellar student of Scripture. And he soon became a teacher of Scripture. There was a program at McCormick Theological Seminary in in Chicago where they admit a a certain, a small percentage of people into the graduate program without a baccalaureate degree. He entered into that program. He did two theological, master's level theological degrees. And his thesis in one of those degrees was a drug rehab program that was implemented at the Olive Branch Mission on the south side of Chicago where he became the director and helped other people who were seeking to get out of their addictions, other gang members who were wanting to be set free, he was able to invest and became a discipler of others. After dinner, and he was, a side note here, he, he, he also became in that church the business administrator. He had a way with numbers. <laughs> He was very intelligent, became the business administrator. And he told me, he said, you know, after I became the business administrator of the church and I found out how little people give to the church, I was foolish to think that I could go and rob that church and pay my debt. (laughs) He said, that would never be. I thought those folks gave a lot of money, but they did not. But here is a church that took holistic evangelism seriously. They proclaimed the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, calling people to repentance and baptism, and then, not as one of my friends, that is not down the aisle and off the hook, but they invested in his life, and he became a discipler of others. And as he was completing that interview, he was completing his Ph.D. in systematic theology, all because it began with a church that took seriously this prompting of wanting to, to, to share Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit with other people. Secondly, when the church is at its best, there is a vision to see the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. Acts 2, 17 reads, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Now, as radical as that sounds to us today, it was nothing compared to the shockwaves that it produced in Joel's day in 6th century B.C. and in the days of the apostles. The radicalness of it was not the fact that leaders had visions. That happened often. But the idea that all flesh, as one translation states, all people could be in touch with God's Tomorrow and what God wants to do through our lives through empowered vision, that was what was radical. 
You see throughout most of history as solitary leaders, whether religious, military, or political, will receive a vision and hand it down to followers. But what Luke is reporting here in the book of Acts, in these last days, and that's a little phrase throughout the New Testament that means starting with the epiphany, that is, the first coming of Jesus. And ending with the parousia, that means the second coming of Jesus. Those of us who live between these two bookends, we are people who are living in the last days. And the scripture says that those of us who are living in this time frame, if we listen, as the book of Revelation says, to what the Spirit is saying to the church, God, through the Holy Spirit, will impart to us dreams and visions of what God would have us to do. Now, admittedly, sometimes this egalitarian ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's, uh, it's risky business, particularly for those folks who like to be in control and like to say, you know, this is the way the Holy Spirit will work. This is the way God will work. It's through certain channels, through certain people, through certain age groups, through certain gender. But the Spirit says... I am available to all people who will listen to what the Spirit is saying. In other words, every one of us in this room, if we have ears to hear, God may be inspiring us to do something in His name that will make a difference here on earth as it is being done in heaven. It could be cleaner to keep it copacetic only certain ways, in certain times. But then we hear a story like this one. Ada Rosario Dolch was the principal of a high school, public high school, just two blocks away from the World Trade Center on September the 9th, 2001. When those planes struck the building, she lost her sister, Wendy, that was working in the building just two blocks away from where she was helping students to get out of Manhattan and trying to get them to safety in their own homes. She said, for two years, I struggled with grief and sorrow and loss. I just, my life seemed like it was so broken, I just could not come back together again. And every Friday night, her church would have a Friday night healing service. And she said, I went to that service. And there I prayed to God, Oh God, if you are a healer, and I believe you are, I need you to touch me. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I'm a principal. There are things that I need to be doing with my life. And she said that night, the Spirit of the living God came on her and brought an inner healing that she had longed and had needed and now experienced. A group of people from the Prudential Insurance Company in California, like the rest of us, were so aware of what was going on. These folks in this local office had no, they were not claims adjusters. They, they didn't have insurance policies dealing with all of the things going on. Maybe they did, but that was not why they were involved in this. They were simply burdened that they wanted to do something. 
And they felt that the Spirit of God was giving them this vision to go to the other side of the country at their own expense and to work with someone. And they chose Ada and her school. And they came alongside her and ministered to the physical and the emotional needs that were being experienced there. On the one-year anniversary of the tragedy, Ada and her family, along with some of her new friends from California, went down to Ground Zero for a special prayer service. And after that prayer service, one of her friends from California said, Ada, what is the legacy for Wendy? And she said, I'm glad you asked because this, this is what I feel that the Spirit of God is saying to me. She says, I'm an educator. That's all I know. That's, that's my life. And here is the vision that I feel, but I've been afraid to speak it to anyone. But my vision is this. I want to build a school. I want to build a school in Afghanistan. I want to build a school for girls and boys. And when she spoke that and she began speaking that, resources began to flow to that vision and that idea and that dream. And on July the 4th, 2004, Ada sat in a, in a room, a new school that had been built, sat on an Afghan rug with 12 Afghan men surrounded by 200 boys and girls. When I read that in the book Decade of Hope, I thought, of that passage of Scripture in that risky New Testament teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The risky vision of building a school for girls and boys in Afghanistan was like rivers running upstream. It's like cats petting dogs. This just doesn't happen. Or it's like Joel's words. In these last days, I will show signs in heaven above. And I will show signs on the earth below of the will of God being done on earth as it is being done in heaven. When the church is at its best, there is a vision to see the will of God being done now as it is in heaven. And finally, the church, when it's at its best, there is a holy presence to guide and to convict the church. Acts 2, we read, when the people heard this, this is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you. And your children, and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. 
The Holy Spirit is the gifted presence of Christ in us and all around us. The Apostle John reminds us in his gospel that the Holy Spirit has come to guide us and the Holy Spirit has come to convict us. The way our faith becomes exciting and generized, energized is to realize that God desires to speak to us, to guide our paths. R.H.L. Shepherd wrote in a, a statement that stuck in my mind over the years, he, concerning this guiding presence of the Holy Spirit, he says that, Christianity does not consist in abstaining from doing things that no lady or gentleman would ever think of doing, but doing things that are unlikely to occur to anyone except that they are in touch with the living and dynamic Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has come to guide us if we will give ears to say, Lord, what is it? But the Holy Spirit not only guides us, the purpose and ministry of the Holy Spirit is also to convict us. The Holy Spirit has come to point out in our lives areas where we need to grow up and to stand up and to live out what we know what we have been taught in God's Word. I get so weary when I hear Christians saying, how much can I do and get away with? How close to the edge can I live my life and still have my ticket stamped for heaven? Can I still be a Christian and do this kind of stuff? When rather, that's not the question. The question should be, what is it, Spirit of the living God, that you are asking me to do or to stop doing? And then instead of resisting and grieving the Holy Spirit, we simply agree with through confession and say, Spirit of the living God, honor my confession, honor my repentance, and take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. On this Palm Sunday, as we anticipate Holy Week and we move towards next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, my prayer for the jar is this. Come Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. Be released in our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, deliver us from the shackles of sin, of of dabbling in things we have no business dabbling. Come, Holy Spirit, guide us so that Christ will be exalted in our lives, in our city, in our state in our nation, and in our world. Come, Holy Spirit. Create within us a dissatisfaction with lukewarm 
safe church membership and create within us a desire for a costly discipleship that calls us to take risks and bids us, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, to come and die. Die to self, but to be alive to Jesus Christ. After the resurrection, Jesus came and he stood among his disciples. And he said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. And then the text says, and then he breathed on them. And then he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit of God. Today, our Lord in the ministry of His Spirit is here with us today. And as we go from this place, I encourage you to be the witness, not simply as an individual, but as the corporate body of Christ the church. And to realize this, that wherever we go with the friends with whom we work and live, our family members, when we become witnesses to them, we are always the second witness. The first witness is always the Holy Spirit. You can't argue somebody. You can't twist somebody's arm. You can't make anyone come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Only the Spirit of God can do that. But I want you to know something. The Spirit of God is at work in the lives of people. We are the second witness. We can come along and simply invite people, hey, come with me, Easter. And some people are going to say, no way. Their hearts may be cold. They're not ready. But I want you to know there's also maybe some people that the Spirit is already at work and they're simply receiving your witness and invitation as a second confirmation in their lives. Spirit of the living God, go with us. Empower us. Amen. Amen. And as powerful teaching and just awesome um and uh and also stop by the there's a table in the back you can actually buy his book recovering our nerve and it just fits so well with with today